Looks like Schindler Corp made a hefty donation to Rocket Man. Whoa. Seems he's also on their board. Who's Rocket Man? Rocket Man is Werner von Braun. He's a Nazi rocket scientist. He was a genius. And I, Golden Goose. What you just heard was a clip from the Amazon original series, Hunters, with actors Al Pacino and Logan Lerman talking about Werner von Braun. He was a brilliant aerospace engineer who, along with carefully selected members of his rocket team, was brought to the United States from Nazi Germany after World War II as part of a military program known as Operation Paperclip. Was he Paperclip's golden goose? We'll talk about von Braun, his rocket team, and their extraordinary contributions to America's space program. We'll also discuss how to reconcile von Braun's status as a national hero with his complicated past as an integral part of the Nazi war effort, especially his involvement with the use of slave labor. This is Paperclip, a podcast series funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Times Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. I'm Michael Ian Black. I'm a comedian, I'm a writer, I'm a history buff, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Monique Laney, a history professor at Auburn University with a focus on the history of technology also the author of the excellent German Rocketeers in the Heart of Dixie, which is exactly about this topic and explores some of the scientists that we're going to talk about. Now, in the last episode, we talked about all these different scientific areas and disciplines that paper clippers belong to, but it's really the rocket team that's talked about the most. Why is that? Primarily, they became really famous because of their contribution to the space program. But also, I think what's really important is that they came as a group. So even though there were hundreds coming, being brought over from Germany under paperclip, this particular group came as like 120 people, and they kind of remained as that group throughout. Is it fair to say that Werner von Braun was the leader of this group? Oh, absolutely. I think he's still well-remembered here in the United States. I think of him, and, th and this is from somebody who really had no knowledge about him before this project, as kind of the father of the American space program. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on who you're talking to. There might be some academics who would argue otherwise. But yes, I think generally speaking... Werner von Braun came to the United States after World War II with this group of 120 rocket scientists who had worked in Nazi Germany. And through the magic of public relations and, and I guess American ingenuity, became a kind of American hero as opposed to a Nazi scourge. How did this happen? Most of what we now know about von Braun was really not public knowledge for decades. It didn't come out until other people than von Braun and his acolytes were writing histories about him. For most Americans, what they would have seen was uh, articles in 19, early 1950s in Collier's magazine basically describing the wows of what we might be able to do with space exploration and with rocketry. 
And so that, as first introduction to von Braun, you know, didn't necessarily make the connection with um, atrocities committed in Nazi Germany. And that really didn't change until much, much later. Not until after his death. So when he died in 1977, he was still kind of lionized here. And this seems to be the kind of insurmountable hurdle with von Braun's past, because if he knew about and or participated in slave labor in Nazi Germany, then that kind of erases our ability to think of him as the father of the American rocketry program, or at least to paint him in a positive light. So the big question, I think, is what was his culpability during that time? Yeah, I I think you're right. That is a good question. I don't know that we really have a satisfactory answer. You know, you have to really understand the Third Reich pretty well. You have to understand how that factory would have worked, like what would have his responsibilities have been. I mean, there's a lot to wrap your head around and to then judge what was happening at the time. It's challenging. Yeah, let's get into it with that first point. What were his responsibilities during the Third Reich? Yeah, so von Braun was brought into working for the army really early on. I think we talked about that in the last episode, how, you know, there was a group of rocketeers that were trying out things and the German army sees this and says, wait a minute, we can really use this and offers them a lot of money and infrastructure and support. Then von Braun very quickly crystallizes as a not only talented engineer, but also extremely talented manager and becomes the head of the entire operation for the V2 rocket. We're talking about a 20-something-year-old who's uh, the technical director of the entire German rocketry program. Yes. What was his background? How did he grow up? What was his family like? Essentially, he grew up as an, in an aristocratic environment. And, and they would have been kind of conservative nationalists, people who aligned themselves with the Nazis only because they thought that uh, that would somehow further their own goals. They didn't necessarily buy into the ideology, if that makes sense. So, it does make sense. Yeah. And uh, so von Braun grows up with classical training of all sorts, it was his mother who was very supportive of his ideas and dreams about space. She got him a telescope and things like that. I mean, somebody of that stature wouldn't, normally the children wouldn't become engineers. <laughs> That's not, no. not where they would head. I heard he was a baron. Yes, but he dropped that. He never used that in the United States, for sure. What did he look like? <laughs> so I've only seen pictures, obviously, tall, blonde, blue-eyed, the classic Aryan look, and presumably very handsome, at least for the the times. Women seem to really think he was all that. So he's this good-looking Aryan side of beef. Yeah. Got it. (laughs) And he was, you know, apparently also just a very charismatic person. I got the impression that he was one of these people that walk into the room and command presence in a way Mm. that not everybody can. Did he join the actual Nazi party? He did join. He even later joined the SS, the elite guard that's supposed to support the ideology of the regime. It's uh, called Schutzstaffel is the actual word for it. And it gets split up later. The SS um, is known for its notorious 
work with uh, concentration camp laborers, but also what's called the Allgemeine SS, um, which is the everyday, if you will, or the everyman's SS. But essentially, uh, it's the ideological organization for the Nazi regime. The best understanding we have really comes from uh, Michael Neufeld, who wrote a uh, fantastic biography about von Braun, and essentially says that he joined these organizations because he was pressed to do so, to keep his job, but also to stay head of the rocket program. Did he ever express any reservations about the SS? Well, apparently he did. Like many of the aristocracy, he would have considered uh, Hitler basically not somebody to take seriously, at least at first. I think he got to know him later, and I remember reading a quote that he recognized that Hitler might be smarter than he first appeared, but I don't think he was ever convinced of him and supported Hitler or his ideology. Does that make sense? It does. What you're saying is there was a small group of moneyed interests in a country who saw a kind of clownish figure that they thought they could use for their own ends and ended up getting used by him for his ends. Yes, indeed. Okay, got it. Um, I mean, you know, history echoes. Doesn't necessarily repeat. Nicely put, yes. (laughs) So... um, so he's this young wunderkind, and I never know if I'm saying that word right. Sounds who, great the way you said it. Oh, thanks. Who gets his doctorate in physics and is very quickly appointed to head up the nascent Nazi rocketry program in the mid to late 30s when the party is booming, war is just starting, and his wildest dreams in terms of a rocketry are going to come true. He's got thousands of men at one point to develop the V2 rocket. Uh, Let me just backtrack for a second. A lot of the team members and the rocket team were soldiers. All they were told essentially was, we would like to use your technical skills and we're going to take you to this secret place (laughs) located on an island in the Baltic Sea for you to work instead of being at the Eastern Front. So a lot of them end up, for that reason, coming to Peenemünde, where the V2 is being developed. But Peenemünde is bombed in 1943 by the Brits. Obviously, the the secret is out, right? Okay, so the British come in, they bomb the shit out of it. What does that do in terms of the program? Does it destroy it, just cripple it? Does it do anything to it? First, everybody's scattering to the winds. They'd already semi-started mass production, and now they're saying, okay, we've got to move where it's safe from any more attacks. So while the developers go back to Peenemünde, production now moves to a place called Nordhausen. Um, That's the town. The site is a mountain called Korn Mountain. It already existed as a production site. So they already have some tunnels in there, but they want to build tunnels all the way in, in order to have this assembly line of producing rockets uh, all underground. A company is founded called Mittelwerk. You know, this is when production really starts picking up. Hitler is basically hoping that these 
wonder weapons of his, the V1 and V2, will put a blow to the Allies and end the war in his favor. So he's asking for the mass production of these weapons. And in order to do that, of course, you need a lot more people. And so they build a camp uh, for forced laborers and bring prisoners of war there straight from uh, Buchenwald. Um, and it was known, it was notorious, knowing that you were going to Dora was... Dora is the name of the camp that is built to that, house these prisoners? That's correct. Okay. Concentration camp Dora. Dora Mittelbau. It becomes one of the scariest places, and it's one of the only... So wait, it's scary in comparison to Buchenwald? Yes. I just... I don't even know what to say. It must have been hell on earth. I, I always think of Dante's Inferno when I hear the descriptions of this. The working conditions are one thing, but the sleeping conditions and the sanitation, the low food supply, all of these things are really extreme. You know, people are dying all the time, all the time. And and they're just left there. That's the other part. So you are living, sleeping, breathing with corpses next to you, with uh, defecation next to you. I'm sorry to be so vivid, but that's the world that, that people were living in or working in. So when von Braun is inspecting these facilities, which he must have done, he has to go through these tunnels. One survivor says he must have seen, and this is a quote from the survivor, the piles of dead in or near the tunnels. So when we talk about von Braun's culpability here, it sounds like what you're saying is he may not have literally been cracking the whip for these laborers, but he was seeing the conditions, seeing the corpses, smelling those smells, and raised no objections. That's my understanding, yes. I don't know how he could have gone through there and not seen that either. That's tough to digest because he had power, like you said— and I understand if he had had moral or ethical objections that he might not have been able to speak up from that point of view. But from a purely pragmatic point of view, he surely could have said, you can't kill my laborers. I need them to get this done. But he didn't, he didn't do that. Not as far as we know. Did he ever express misgivings about the laborers and the way they were used? We don't have any evidence of that until the very end, almost just before he dies. We have people saying that he did that, but we don't have any evidence from him directly. So that's hearsay. And did he ever deny knowing the conditions? He had to give depositions for trials that were being held in Germany. And so he would have had to acknowledge his knowledge. As I was trying to allude to earlier, von Braun and, his, and some of his associates, they're the ones telling the history. And they completely leave out the story about the concentration camp labor. And that alone is, I think, problematic, <laughs> to say the least. When you neglect to mention the slaves from the concentration camps working on your little rocket project, that feels like a glaring omission to me. Yeah. So the war ends, and how does von Braun get out? The rocket group, and I'm saying that loosely, they recognize, okay, this is ending. And so as soon as they see a chance to do so, a fairly large group of them moves further down to Bavaria, because that's where they expect the Americans to come in, because they're very, very much aware of the fact that 
what they have to offer is highly valuable. And if they want to have any chance of continuing the kind of work they were doing on rockets, then the Americans are their absolutely best bet because the Americans will have won the war and have an interest in this technology, which all the allies would have had, but the Americans would have had the money to actually support a larger program. Let's take a break to hear from Hunter star Logan Lerman, whose character Jonah Heidelbaum is thrust into the world of vigilante justice after his grandmother's murder. Jonah's decision to join the Hunters leads him on a journey of self-examination where he's confronted with difficult questions about his own morality. Here's what Logan had to say on the topic when asked about it in a previous interview. Jonah's trying to define his uh, his morality and... Uh, the definition for right and wrong, and he's got a really complicated ethical journey where he he kind of grew up in this world where he was obsessed with kind of superheroes and comics and this kind of clean sense of of you know a very binary sense of like right and wrong. And throughout the series, he's starting to define what makes a good guy or what makes a good guy a good guy. And, uh, what is right and wrong for them to do in order to protect their values. It's a very complicated journey for him. Now let's get back to Paperclip. So the Americans are coming in. Presumably, as we talked about in the last episode, they're looking for these engineers and rocket scientists and physicists already. And Von Braun and his group are also looking for the Americans. They're just sort of seeking each other out. Essentially, yeah. And then they send uh, von Braun's brother, actually, Magnus von Braun, out to um, basically as a scout to find the Americans and to tell them, hey, I've got these people back here you probably want to talk to. That is so interesting. So this first group that that is found would have been put on warships and in groups sent over to the United States. They would have ended up in New York. From there, put on trains down to Fort Bliss, Texas. What's more important here is that it's near White Sands Proving Ground. And what was going on at White Sands Proving Ground? So the Americans had not only captured some of the people, but also a lot of the uh, leftover V2 pieces. They were bringing them back over to White Sands Proving Ground in order to put them together and with the help of the Germans understand this new technology that the Germans had and nobody else had at this point. So the American rocketry program was non-existent at that time? There were people working on rocketry at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California. NACA already existed, which is the forerunner of NASA, right? The NACA. And so... Things were being worked on in rocketry, but the V-2 is really state-of-the-art at this point. So they bring the Germans over to engineer V-2s, uh, because they've got, the, right. they've got the original dudes. So why didn't they just stay there? For one, we, we talked about this in the last episode, the whole operation goes from a secret military operation that's temporary to a full-blown permanent keep them here in the country operation. And that happens before they even go to Huntsville. So by 47, they're already put through the process of being able to become immigrants who then become citizens eventually. And so in this process, they're working on the V-2 rockets, trying to perfect its guidance system, trying to put a whack corporal rocket on top of it, trying a to what? do some science. I'm sorry. That may be too much detail. <laughs> no, it sounds cool. I just want to know what it is. Um, 
So a WAC, W-A-C, WAC corporal rocket, basically a small rocket on top of the V-2 rocket, right? It's basically creating a second stage for the first time. So, you know, rockets eventually are multi-stage if you want to get all the way to the moon at some Mm -hmm. point. That is so interesting. So this is kind of the beginning of that, testing that out, doing all sorts of science experiments with the V-2 rockets, taking photographs of Earth. These are the first photos we have of Earth from space come from this period. Wow. That's all happening in Texas. And the reason they moved to Huntsville is that the rocket development program is spread out all over the United States, and they want to consolidate it. So there is is a scouting trip to identify a place, and Redstone and Huntsville Arsenal, they're right next to each other, are free and up for grabs. And they have this real advantage there near a body of water. So the Tennessee River flows there. So when you need to move the larger rocket pieces then on barges all the way over to the Cape, those are the kind of considerations here that come into play. And so Redstone Arsenal becomes the place to move the entire rocket program to. And they're literally driving in their cars, packing their families, driving over there. And is it still considered a military project or is it starting to be considered a civilian space exploration project? The civilian space exploration doesn't come into to being until NASA is created in 1958. So 1950 is when they moved to Huntsville. Everybody's packing up their station wagons uh, ostensibly to continue working on missiles for the Army. Yeah, and uh, there's an interesting tidbit here, too. So they're developing what later becomes the Jupiter missile that you might have Mm -hmm. heard of, essentially the missile that started the Cuban Missile Crisis. So for me, that's kind of a what-the-fuck moment. This is a part of the Cuban Missile Crisis most people don't realize. The reason we even had that crisis is because the U.S. stationed these Jupiter missiles in Turkey and Italy, aiming towards the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was like, uh, excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> They're like, no thanks. So, so their reaction is to bring missiles to, to Cuba. But yeah, if it hadn't been for those Jupiter missiles, that wouldn't have happened. And so the Germans are also responsible for building that missile. I had no idea. So you mentioned that these missiles are being developed for military technology. Uh, von Braun and his team were, were the top designers in Germany and then become the top designers in the U.S. And yet somewhere along the way, the Soviet Union seems to supplant us in missile technology. How did that happen and why did that happen? So let me just really quickly give you a nice visual for that, that they're heading both programs. Mm -hmm. 1943, the same people heading Penamunda and the V2 project are the same people in 1963 working for NASA heading the space work there. Which is an amazing thing to think about. We've talked about what the conditions were like at Penamunda and at Dora and Middlevark where this was taking place. And 20 years later, the same exact people are in charge of getting Americans to the moon. It is a startling thing to think about when you put it in those terms. That's why I wanted to paint that picture 
Now, you were asking about how was it that Sputnik surprised the Americans? How is yeah. it that the Soviet Union was first? You know, the U.S. president at the time, Eisenhower, is not really interested in space exploration. Yet at the same time, there's something called the IGY, which is the International Geophysical Year, um, and it was scheduled for 1957. And it's the whole international scientific community basically agreed to collect data internationally in order to get the best accurate data possible for certain scientific projects. So, so it's a big the, global collaboration. Yeah. And in the context of that IGY, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union say, you know, we're going to try to also build satellites. So that could be a really good way to get data from around the world if we had the scientific instruments orbiting the world. But the thing is, the investment in this was not the same. And so the Soviets see this clearly as a chance to really show the world what they're capable of, right? Whereas the United States doesn't support it in the same way. They're both developing rockets as well as satellites to place them into space. The Soviets do everything they can to be the first to do that. And I think even the Soviets didn't realize how mm. intensely the world would react to that and Americans would react to that. But that's how this happens. Well, it sounds like what we needed back then was a space force. Just call it a space <laughs> force and suddenly people are going to get super excited about it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's a different <laughs> different question. Uh, but, you know, I mean, one thing I, I think we need to address is that von Braun, even though he's working for the army, is promoting civilian space exploration. And he's writing for Collier's Magazine, which in the early 50s, everybody would have had that at home. And that's how he becomes a name that people recognize. And he, So von Braun is evangelizing for a civilian space program, which does not yet exist. Exactly. And what were his arguments? What was he saying? Von Braun really believed that that the, the future was in space exploration. He had ideas for how we get to the moon, then how we go to Mars. He develops ideas about a space station. Literally, like when you look at uh, 2001, that film by Stanley mm -hmm. Kubrick, that space station is based on the ideas of Von Braun. The images you see there are very similar to the ones that show up in the Collier's articles. So... This idea of a civilian space program in the United States, would that have existed if it weren't for von Braun? He wasn't the only one who believed in this. And I think mm -hmm. the reason for the creation of the civilian space program was uh, very calculated and very geopolitical. You know, in this whole campaign of the Cold War of winning hearts and minds, this is part of that. It, if we have a separate civilian space program, people can really fall in love with it and support it in ways that they wouldn't if it was all military, right? So it's very much a public relations thing. So the civilian space program championed by von Braun becomes a kind of proxy in the Cold War. It's meant to demonstrate our superiority in terms of our way of life to the Soviet way of life, that, that, with, that with American gumption and know-how, there's nothing we can't do. And the guy who becomes the face of it used to be a Nazi who was walking past corpses to develop V-2 rockets to bomb London. Oh, wow. You sure know how to paint a picture. <laughs> I mean, it's a tough thing to wrap your head around. <laughs> yeah. Because I know, like, as an American, 
My heart fully belongs to NASA. I love NASA. I love the dream of space exploration. I love that we or any other nation went to the moon, can go to the moon, can explore Mars, can explore all the different planets. But the history of it, when you look at not only Von Braun, but this team that he had, and the reasons that it even came into existence really kind of taint that picture for me in, in ways that are, that are upsetting. No, I understand. And I, I have to keep reminding myself and I think maybe you that people at the time would not have seen it that way. Mm-hmm. They would have not put those two things together. Very few people. I mean, obviously, there were always people who did that. You wouldn't have had Tom Lehrer, his song about Von Braun. I haven't. I know it exists. I haven't heard it. Tom Lehrer was like a musical satirist. Yes. And he has a brilliant song that people kept playing at me when I was writing my dissertation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sure know, that wasn't um, annoying at all. Yeah. So Sputnik goes up. And it is a huge propaganda coup for the Soviet Union. How does the U.S. respond? The U.S. scrambles. And even though von Braun and his group had a rocket ready um, that could launch that satellite into orbit immediately, right? It was decided that the Navy should do that. And so they try to launch the Vanguard rocket. It's televised around the world because we're an open country. Unlike the Soviet Union that did everything in secret, you only found out afterwards. The Vanguard rocket explodes on the launch pad. Oof. Yeah. That's not good. So that's a huge blow, right? The Soviets have a satellite um, already in orbit. Who knows what else they can do with that, whether they could weaponize it, whatever. And we can't even get our rocket off the launch pad. That, that's devastating. And so Fold Brown and his group swoop in immediately and say, we've got one ready to go. Sputnik 1 happens October 4th of 1957. The launch of the American satellite Explorer 1 is January 31st, 1958. So four months later, we put our satellite into orbit. Yes. And it's successful. It creates this idea of von Braun being able to kind of save the nation. I mean, he's literally... His group has saved the nation in this Cold War debacle. And is that when he becomes a celebrity? Is that when he becomes like a household name? Oh, no. He's been a household name for a while now. Is he the guy in charge of the rockets for the manned missions as well? When they moved from the Army to NASA in 1960. When Are I they say still in Huntsville? To, yeah. So when I say move to NASA, the Marshall Space Flight Center is built on Redstone Arsenal. So basically, they're just moving buildings. <laughs> but they are moving from a military to a civilian, the Na- so NASA. This may be a dumb question, but Von Braun spent 10, 15 years working for the military. He was always a civilian working for the military? Yes, they all were. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. So they moved to NASA in 1960. And Pretty much right after that, uh, 1961, JFK pronounces, we are going to send humans to the moon. And so that becomes the job to build the rocket we know as the Saturn V rocket that will take humans to the moon. The one that eventually brings Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and wait, I'm going to remember the other dude, uh, Michael Connolly? Collins. Ah! I knew I was close. Michael Collins to the moon. Yes. Yes, it is the largest rocket to date. The largest rocket. Oh, even rocket. still? Yes, to date. They're working oh, wow. on, a, on, a, on a larger one right now, but we still don't have it. 
And that's Von Braun's design? Yeah, I mean, it's his team's design, his right? His team, I mean, right. He heads the whole thing, but he's not doing everything. He right. has people working for him. <laughs> Lots of people are involved in this process. Right, he's not on the side of the thing painting USA. He's got people for that. Yeah. It's probably hard for people who don't remember the moon landing, and I'm including myself, to understand. It captured a place in the global imagination and certainly in the American imagination what was it like at the time for people? So for the Americans, an immense sense of national pride. But you have to imagine that people didn't believe that this would ever be possible. The, the, the flip side to this is as soon as it was done, people lost interest. A human being is setting foot on an alien world. And almost immediately people are like, okay, what's next? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Right. Yes, yes. Funding goes away too, right? So we NASA starts losing funding, right? Uh, the last missions are even scrapped completely, right? So, yeah, it's it's wild. You know, the moon was supposed to be step one, right? So, what happens to von Braun after the moon landing? First, NASA sends him up to headquarters and wants him to be part of uh, development there, but that he realizes that it's not going anywhere. My understanding is that he goes into industry fairly quickly. I found the NASA-produced video of Von Braun talking about the equal employment opportunity it's from the late 1960s. And he's clearly reading a script where he literally talks about affirmative action. And how it's a good thing and we need to give equal opportunities to everybody in our country. And this country was founded on these principles. And now we have to make them become true. It was just a little bit startling to see this guy essentially going to bat for civil rights. Do you have any sense of where he ended up politically as an American? Well... I think he remained the pragmatist because the issue with civil rights was trying to attract people to Huntsville, Alabama. And this whole civil rights stuff was not good for business. I'm saying this very crassly, but that's my, my understanding of how things went down. Important point and also mirrors what we know about von Braun's work earlier in his life. He was a pragmatist. He was a guy who had dreams and was essentially willing to do whatever it took to make those dreams become reality. And it's also startling to realize when his needs in Huntsville became such that he needed to conscript labor, that he was willing to do what that took. In this case, it was a liberalization that he was advocating. And obviously, earlier in his life, it was the exact opposite. He's a fascinating character and a complex character. And somebody that I think we as Americans really need to reckon with, because he not only speaks to his own complicated past, but the thesis of your book is essentially that he speaks to America's complicated past with issues involving race, equality, meritocracy, or, or lack of. And, and of course, these were all guys working on this stuff, so... Uh, patriarchy. And this look into one guy's life in this episode has really been a kind of fascinating overview 
of all of these issues. So it sounds like Werner von Braun never had to face any consequences for his actions during the war, or even really any serious interrogation about his life during the war. Is that correct? I think I mentioned earlier he had to uh, give like a, a disposition um, for a trial, but the trial was for somebody else. So he was mm. never, nope, he was never questioned. In the television series Hunters, the premise of the show is that in the 1970s, this this renegade group of Nazi hunters starts to go after people who participated in war crimes um, who are now living in the in the United States. But in real life, did any of the von Braun's rocket team have to face their own pasts and and have to face consequences? Yeah. So um, the one guy that actually then gets picked up by the Office of Special Investigations is Arthur Rudolph. He ends up actually leaving the country and um, renouncing his American citizenship. There's a long story there. Well, that sounds like a perfect topic for an episode, and we will get into the long and complicated history of Arthur Rudolph in the next episode of Paperclip. Paperclip is funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Times Studios. The Los Angeles Times Newsroom was not involved in the creation of this series. The views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily the views of Amazon Studios or the LA Times.